97% of salespeople are missing this one thing that if they only knew it would allow them to close 75% more sales. It has nothing to do with charisma, the gift of gab, or whatever else you've been told. Because if you're trying to convince your customer, that means they don't want to buy, which means you've already lost the sale. What sales professionals do is sell customers exactly what they want to buy. They work with the customer to uncover their current challenges, the consequences of those challenges, and how that's impacting them. They then help the prospect describe the ideal solution to their problems, what that looks like, and how that perfect outcome will impact them. And once they can picture that perfect outcome, price is irrelevant. That's right. Sales professionals sell customers exactly what they want to buy because it's easier dealing with a happy customer than dealing with a customer who felt sold. So here's the deal. I explain everything in my live two-day sales workshop, June 14th and 15th in my office. Go to closemoresales.com slash workshop and you'll be able to close more sales as soon as you get back. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today, we have my good buddy, Tim Bratz with Legacy Wealth Holdings. And he flew in from Charleston, South Carolina to talk about owning $400 plus million in real estate by the age of 35. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm Steve Trang, sales trainer. Every month, we help hundreds of people buy more houses at deeper margins. If you want to learn more about that, DM me the word sales on Instagram. And I am on a mission to create 100 millionaires. And the question I get all the time is how to become a millionaire. And the information on this podcast alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you will take consistent action, you will become one. And this show is brought to you by our company, Investor Lift. Uh, get access to over 2 million cash buyers across the country. Go to InvestorLift.com. Put in disruptors to get 10% off. I need to get value out of the show today. Please tag a friend below. Share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. And uh, we are hiring. So if you're interested in working with us, go to disruptors.com slash hiring. And we do have a Discord that we're going to be doing a live AMA on. So be sure to check out that link below. And this is a live show. So please ask your questions for Tim to answer. Ready? Let's rock and roll, buddy. Born All ready. Right. Well, thanks for coming. Dude, I, mean, I think I'm, this is like two years. <laughs> in we, the making. Now, yeah. I, I do. I have a ton of respect for you. I have a ton of respect for what you've been doing. I apologize. It's taken this long to get out here. But... Um, no, man, I'm, I'm super excited to be here. I came out here, flew out here just to come and hang out with you and spend some time together. So yeah. I'm excited. I appreciate that. This is going to be great. So the first question, softball, right, is what got you into real estate? Um, so I was going through college 03 to 07 when the market was going crazy last time. So everybody's like, you can make money in real estate. And I was a money motivated kid when I was 20 years old. So I interned for a big uh, uh a home builder, one of the biggest home builders in the country, actually. And then I, uh, you know, had like a painting company and I just saw that there was a lot of, a lot of money to be you made in real estate. Company he had. I did. Okay. So I, it was me and a couple of my buddies, well, about 12, 15 guys I had working for me and we'd just go paint the exterior of houses every summer. And so that's how I kind of like paid for school and travel and drinking and everything else. And so, uh, when I graduated from college in 07 though, I, my brother was living in New York city and he's like, dude, come and live with me. And so I move out to New York city and I thought I got involved in real estate. The, the way to get involved in real estate was to get your real estate license, you know? So I got my real estate license and for some reason I parked it with a commercial brokerage instead of a residential one. And so I brokered like retail leases and office leases. Um, I wasn't like, they weren't going to give a multi-million dollar uh, investment building to some kid that's 21 years old to go and, and broker. So I didn't really get those, but I saw it happening in the office. And, um, I broke my first deal. It took me eight months. It was 400 square feet, um, about the size of, of this room. And, uh, when I went in there and I brokered a deal, it was a 10 year lease agreement at 10, I'm sorry, 12 year lease agreement at $10,000 a month with a 4% annual increase on 400 square feet. And I start doing the math as a, 
you know, money motivated kid. I'm like, this landlord's gonna make almost two million bucks over the next 12 years mm-hmm. for doing something once. Yeah. And I was like, I'm on the wrong side of the coin. I, I really wanna be owning real estate. And so I, uh, it was, you know, bad winter uh, up in New York. And I was like, I'm going south. I need, uh, I need some sunshine. I moved down to Charleston, South Carolina. And just went through that whole analysis paralysis phase and realized pretty quickly that I wasn't going to learn how to invest in real estate by reading about real estate in a book. Like I needed to actually go take some action. It's like swimming, right? Yeah. Like you can read about swimming. You can, you can hear testimonials about swimming. You can like, <laughs> like uh, have all the gear, but if you don't actually get in the water, dude, how are you going to swim? You got to get in the water and that real estate's the same way. You got to get in the water, uh, and get into a deal. And so, um, the, the caveat there, though, is that this is 2008 that I, that I decided I'm going to be, become a full-time real estate investor, summer of 08. And, and as I'm going through analysis paralysis, the entire market collapses, right? Lehman Brothers go out of business, Bear Stearns, all this other stuff. And so uh, as I show up to the party, everybody's running out the back door saying, get the hell out of real estate. Don't do real estate. The good news was I didn't take out like no-doc loans or stated income loans or anything like that. And so... I, I walked into a market where the prices just started bottoming out, you know, and I looked at the MLS and I found the cheapest house on the entire MLS. It was 25 grand. And then I, I ended up uh, calling up friends and family and I, nobody would give some punk kid who, who <laughs> doesn't have any experience in real estate, never done a deal in the worst housing recession ever money. So call uh, up a cr- go ahead. Can we just take one, one step back? Yeah. So you were doing retail spaces. So um, my understanding, I don't know if this is the way it was for you, um, punk kid wants to get into commercial real estate. It's not like, Hey, here's some opportunities. It's go grind the phones. Yep. Right. It so. was, it was grind, grind, grind. It was, uh, like the, the, the business that rented that 400 square foot space was like a falafel shop, like their first falafel shop, right? Like yeah. they might make it, they might not make it. Or maybe they have one, I would either represent the landlord in marketing the space or I'd represent the tenant in finding another space. Yeah. So like the, the, the listings and the tenants that I had were side street, back alley kind of tenants, you know, with a small business, but they couldn't pay more than a thousand dollars or 2000 or, or, I mean, that guy had 10,000 and I saw, I did one deal that was like $15,000 a month. And so, um, but it, dude, it was grinding, but here's the thing. Like, I think there's people who, Oh, I don't have that person's experience. I don't have their knowledge or I don't have their, uh, their resources. If you are resourceful, resourcefulness is the ultimate resource. You can go and find the money. You can find the deals. If you're willing to pound the pavement hard enough, somebody who's your age or my age or older than us might see some young kids straight out of college and be like, they got something, right? They at least have the work ethic. They have the discipline. They're willing to show up early. They're willing to stay late. And dude, that to me, I hire based on attitude, not based on their their technical knowledge of of real estate. I want a badass. I want somebody who's fun to work with and somebody who works hard when it's time to work and then they they play when it's time to play. Well, the reason why I want to emphasize this point, right? Because obviously you've had a lot of success, Uh, but you started off just grinding the phones. And there are so many people, you know, like that are getting into our space, wholesaling real estate, and instead of like grinding the phones, like they can't wait mm-hmm. to hand it off to a VA to cold call or hire someone else to cold call and, and do the lead gen. And I think personally, I think that's a mistake. Yeah. So I think, you know, how much do you think that helped you when you were buying houses or when you transitioned to buying apartments? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great point. I, and I think, uh, you know, I do coaching just like you do coaching. And so people, uh, we see people in, in different stages of their business and everybody wants to task out 
the revenue generating activities. That should be one of the last things that you task out, right? Like the first thing that you, if you're gonna hire somebody, the first hire should be to take non-revenue generating activities off your plate. An assistant, an admin, to do all the things that are less than $100 per hour tasks, yeah. hire somebody for that. I will say the next hire typically though, in my mind, it would be an acquisitions person. But you can't train an acquisitions person unless you know acquisitions. You need to know, you know, think about what's important in real estate. It's really three things, sourcing deals, sourcing capital, and then either dispositions if you, if you flip or it's operations if you yeah. hold like I do. And so like those three things are the only things that matter. That's it. It's not the software, right? And I, I have a software, right? Like it's not uh, uh, your business cards or like if somebody asked me if they if I have a business card, I'm like, dude, no, look me up on social media, send me a DM, right? Now they're engaged and we can stay connected longer term versus giving me a business card that I throw in the in the recycling bin, you know? you know? Like these days when someone like gives me a business card, I kind of like flinch. It's like, <laughs> no, I don't yeah. want it because yeah. I know what, what, exactly what's going to happen. It's going to sit in my pocket yeah. for a little bit yeah. and it's going to go on a dresser. <laughs> and then at some point I'm going to feel bad for throwing the recycle. <laughs> And that's the, the life cycle of a business card. It is. It is. Connect with me on social media. Send me a message. If you want to stay engaged with me and stay top of mind with me, and I know it's for you, we're, we're buddies with Brian Pineda and a couple of the other, uh, you know, some of the good guys in real estate that are big influencers and coaches. The people who stay relevant to me, I don't know if it's the same for you, but it's people who are typically engaging on my posts. Mm -hmm. People who are sending me DMs, who are liking, who are commenting, who are uh, sharing my posts. Like they get my attention. It's top of mind. And those are the ones that I pay more attention to, right? Yeah. You know, just real quick, you just brought up Ryan Pineda. So uh, we hung out in, in uh, Tampa uh, about a year ago, right? This is a collective genius. Yeah, 15 months. Yeah. And I remember like we're drinking late night. It's like one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and it was me, you, Ryan, and Casey Ryan. Yeah. Right. Uh, also from Vegas. Mm -hmm. And I was looking there. It's like, man, how much would someone be willing to pay? <laughs> right. Now we, we do pay, right. We're, we're paying Jason Medley, collective genius. Yeah. To <laughs> we pay him for, so we can be friends. So we can be friends. But like, I was just thinking like, what would somebody be willing to pay? Right. To just listen to this conversation. And yeah. I think that conversation we were, all we were talking about was reducing taxes. Mm -hmm. like it wasn't like <laughs> something like, here's this amazing project we're going to work on. We're talking about like, here's how we reduce our taxes. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that was a quick tangent. All right. Yeah, so dude, it's, being, you know, what's a shortcut to success? There are no shortcuts. You got to go out and do the work. But I will say if there's one shortcut, it's being in the right room yeah, with the right people who are going in a direction that you want to be going. That expedites everything. Like, think about this. You've been in business for how long? 15 years. 15. I've been in business for 15 years also. Okay. So we've both been out there doing real estate deals for 15 years. You know, certain CPAs and attorneys and, uh, marketers and all these different people. I know those, some people too, uh, private money lenders, whoever we become friends because we both pay to get in that same room. Mm -hmm. You're paying for proximity. We start rubbing elbows. We start connecting. Hey, I like you. You like me. Let's go do a deal together. And all of a sudden, you're able to bring money, let's call it, to one of my apartment deals. You get into a deal that you couldn't have gotten into. Right. I get into a deal that maybe I couldn't have gotten into, or I get introduced to your private money lenders that you've taken 15 years to build respect and credibility with. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like you transferring that relationship over to me is something that would have taken me 15 years to develop. So by being in the right rooms and not being transactional, but being relationship driven, right? Dude, that is the way to fast track success. Absolutely. Um, so, all right. So now you were talking about, you were on the other side, 
you're looking to acquire. So sorry, I, I stopped yeah, you there. So no, continue I, that story. So the, what the step that got me into real estate investing was I didn't have anybody with money, but I wanted to go out and do a deal. And I, I realized these houses are like, you can't lose money on these houses. Well, it's a $25,000 house. Well, yeah, if I fire sailed it, I could probably make more than that on it. Yeah. Or what if I, what if I sold it for $20,000? Guess what? It's not a $25,000 risk. It's a 20 or it's a $5,000 risk. Is mm -hmm. that, you know what I mean? But people build up these stories in their head of, I can't go buy a house for 150. What if I lose it? Right. If you gave it back to the bank or if you sold it at a, at a discount, you're still going to get 120, 130 for it. Right. So it's not a $150,000, uh, uh, risk. So in my mind, I was like, uh, you know, let, let me go and try this thing out. I called up my credit card company and I said, Hey, I'm about to make a big purchase. I need you to increase my credit limit. And they're like, all right, Mr. Bratz, what would you like? Uh, what, what do you need your credit limit to be? And I was like, $100,000. And, uh, uh, the lady laughed just kind of like you did. <laughs> She's like, you've been a great customer for like 14 months since you graduated from college, but we can't really give you a hundred thousand dollar limit from three grand that you're at right now, but they give me 15. And so, um, I go find the cheapest house on the MLS. It's listed at 25. I went in at 12. They came back at 20. I came back at 14, which was really the highest and best I could do. Cause that's the most money I had. And uh, they accepted it. And so dude, uh, uh, an idiot kid who didn't know anything about real estate contracted this house. And you think it's scary to like make offers, wait until one gets accepted. You know what I mean? Like then you really, Oh my gosh, well, now what do I do? And I actually took a balance, like a perforated balance transfer transfer check handwritten to the title company. I was like, Hey, here you go. And they're like, what? No, <laughs> take this back. Go get cert like certified funds, bring it back tomorrow. I was like, yeah, yeah. I just, I don't know. So you legitimately bought a house with a credit card, with a credit card. It was 0% interest for, I think it was six months. And, um, it was like a $200 fee or something in order to borrow the money. Yeah. And, uh, 110 days later I flipped it. I was all into it for about 19 and some change and sold it for $33,000 to one of the neighbors. And so sold the house and made a check for about 13, $14,000 of, of net profit to me. It was the biggest check I've ever made to that point in my life in, in a single check. And I was like, dude, people are saying, don't do real estate. Yeah. This is easy. There's, I mean, somebody's making real money in real right. estate, you know? And so I did it again, did it again, started meeting people uh, who saw my work ethic, who saw that I knew a little bit, you know, I was gaining knowledge and insights. And uh, they ended up saying, hey, you can go do the work. I have money or I have access to money and I don't have the bandwidth to go and do that. How about I bring the money, you do the work. And all of a sudden I started creating like joint venture partnerships where with private money lenders. How, and, when did you start doing that? Cause you're, you're saying around 2008 is when you started buying houses. I bought my first house in April of, of 2009, 2009. When did you do enough to demonstrate the credibility that people were saying, Hey, Tim, I want to lend you money. I did some wholesaling deals. And then from doing those wholesaling deals, I bought my first buy and hold rental. I want to say it was, it was, it was, oh man, I, I got a seller finance deal and I brought private money. Um, I paid someone right for coaching mm -hmm. through like the whole rich dad thing when that was the thing. Um, and my mentor introduced me to a private money lender who had um, like 15 grand or something or 25 grand in her, in her IRA. And so she was, a, but guess what? She didn't know me, but because it was introduced through somebody that she respected, mm -hmm. that respect transferred to me. And she ended up becoming a private money lender of mine. So yeah. I got the seller on my first buy and hold. I think it was July of 09. My first buy and hold, I ended up um, buying it with seller financing 
of 32 grand. She brought 25 grand, but the total purchase price was only 50, but I had $57,000. So I walked away from a, a two unit, both rented at 550 a month, and I walked away with a check for $6,600 from that closing, using none of my own money, none of my own credit, with a cash flowing asset, $6,600 in my pocket, and about 400 bucks a month in positive cash flow. And I'm like, dude, there's something to this. And so that's actually how I started doing, uh, how I got into like real estate or uh, apartment buildings and kind of what my business model is there, you know? So, well, so this is around 2010. Like when did you transition to apartments? Cause you know, that's something I do want to talk about. Yeah. Um, apartments came in, bought my first apartment in December of 2012. Okay. So was, you were, you were in it for a while. Cause I think that along the way you, cause you had success mm -hmm. on the single family side. Right. I mean, it's 2011, 2012. It was really hard to make a mistake. Like you were making money if you were in doing single family houses. But I figured out how to make mistakes. <laughs> so, so here, here's really what happened. Like I, I don't usually get into this story, but we got some time. So, uh, I had 10 units, um, by 10 houses, 10 houses. Uh, yeah. 10 doors, all, all single family houses. One was two houses on a single parcel. And then one was like my own primary residence that I was house hacking. So I had two of my buddies renting from me, uh, paying me rent to live in the other two bedrooms of my house. So I had 10 total houses and I think I got to figure it out, dude, right? Like my residual income coming in paid for all my operating expenses, all my debt service, all my private money lender payments, um, all my personal expenses and put another thousand dollars a month in my pocket. So I'm like, dude, I'm not rich, but I'm financially free. I think I got this figured out, right? So then I go and bought a Mercedes. And then I went and bought a private membership to a, a, a business and, and like dining club. And then I started going on some fancy vacations. And I just started racking it up. I didn't have the cash, right? Your expenses because, were catching up. But I, had, but I had this credit card and I had this residual income. And I think it's just going to pay for that all the time. So I started racking up expenses on my credit card. And then somebody shines a dangly object in front of me. It was a network marketing company. And, um, and it made sense, right? It actually aligned with real estate really well. It was like home services, like internet and, and home security and TV and electricity and natural well, gas. Yeah. <laughs> That's what. And so I'm like, well, I know I'm in real estate. I have my own rentals. I know a bunch of people who have management companies that, that could push this. And so I joined and dude, I drank the juice hard for about two, two and a half years. And uh, I had some immediate success. And then it, it waned off considerably, but the relationships that I got out of that and the personal development that I got out of it was like unbelievably uh, impactful that I still use a lot today. Uh, who's the guy? Uh, Robert Allen, right? Mm -hmm. 12 streams of income, whatever it is. That was one of the things he talked about. You know, I never joined an MLM. Mm -hmm. um, might be joining one in the very near future. You know, I kind of talked about that offline yeah. earlier. Uh, but he talks about like the importance of joining an MLM in your in your real estate when you're trying to get multiple streams of income mm -hmm. not because mlms are great nope. <laughs> but it teaches you networking marketing relationships personal development there are so many things that it teaches you that doesn't really necessarily help the mlm business but the skills you need well, that, will apply everywhere that's how you keep people right yeah. if you're not paying them anything you got to give them value somewhere else and the value that you give them is in the personal development side of things and the relationships and they don't want to leave their friends you know what i mean and so i mean that's that alone is a concept that people can employ in their own businesses right right it's not always about the money hey this person's going to stay with me if i give them a raise that's not necessarily the case if you 
empower them, if you give them personal development, if you help them improve and gain new skills, they're going to appreciate you more than just a $5,000 raise, you know? So that's what the MLM business knows really, really well. Dude, I, I was so sold out on it that I sold nine of the 10 houses that I had. I only kept my own. And so I sold them and I went all in on that for like two years. Um, and then just found myself completely like destitute. Like I had $80 in my bank account in what happened in August of 2012. So you had this really lucrative biz real estate thing going. Yeah. And then you just kind of put down the back burner. And, well, I thought that I could generate more revenue quicker, more residual income quicker by pursuing the MLM business. So this is something that's, I think, uh, everyone in our space, everyone that's watching this podcast, we all suffer from shiny object syndrome. Yep. And it sounds like you had a really bad, <laughs> bad one there. And, and I have a way to combat that. And I want to come back to it a little bit later. Um, but it's called the three year rule, but I want to come back to that. Okay. It's powerful. So I, I, I dedicated two years to this and I sold my real estate off and, um, thinking that I was going to make more money in this other venture faster and like exponentially without having overhead, without having loans, without having, um, you know, property taxes and all that kind of stuff. It's like exponentially, uh, scalable, at least, you know, theoretically. Um, and then I just realized, dude, like I had, I, like I was in the top 1% of performance, but I had 800, 900 people like, uh, in my downline and whatever it was 3,500 customers. And dude, there was one month, it was, it was in August of 2012 that, uh, I was the only person who got a check on the entire team. And you start thinking like, dude, and these are people who are showing up, who are following the system, who are like doing what they're supposed to be doing. And it wasn't working right for other people. And it, and it wasn't working for me. Like, and my check was like 60 bucks, right? It wasn't like a big check. So it, it, it like, I, I remember like being so broke. Like I, I was selling Ikea furniture from my house or like Walmart furniture, side tables, selling DVDs for two to $3 a piece, trying to just be able to buy food. You know, I, I go to, um, Subway and I'd go and buy a foot long sub at lunchtime for $5, $5 foot long. I loaded up with as many veggies and all the free stuff as you could. I eat half of it at lunch, eat half of it dinner. And then I wouldn't eat again until the next day when I went to Subway again. So like I was intermittent fasting before it was cool yeah. to intermittent fast. I was going to say, I thought you were going to say like, you know, it's you really bought those being broke, right? <laughs> I thought you were going to say like you were buying those foot longs and like selling it afterwards. Like, man, this guy's really resourceful. <laughs> <it off. laughs> but, uh, um, but dude, I was like, I was paying for uh, gas with the coins out of the cup holder of my car. I don't know if you ever bought a dollar 24 cents of gas and, and coins before, but it's, it's freaking embarrassing. You know, what happened that caused ACN to kind of crumble? Um, I mean, I, I think they're still around, right. As, but, as a business, but, but your for me, whole line, yeah, it, it was just like, dude, they just burn through people. Like here's the, here's the issue. There's no real, there's no real, uh, uh margin in cell phones, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's only a handful of companies because they have tens and hundreds of millions of customers. And so they have a very little margin across so many customers. That's how they make money. There's so much competition in cell phones in electricity and natural gas and TV and internet and all that other stuff Got it. that there's not real money in the product. Yeah. Right. Well, so like when you sell juices and lotions and potions and coffees and all this other stuff that people sell in MLMs, so, like makeup, like there's real money in Avon and in Mary Kay and in some of these other businesses because they sell a product that has real margin mm -hmm. built in. There's no margin in that. So the reason they make money is by running through people. 
right? Um, and this isn't meant to be you know, shit on that company or anything. No, but, it, you, but it was, I'm asking about this because that's why, that's what I realized is like, if you're not running through people and there's a lot of people that you're just going to take money from to sign up and you know, they're never going to be successful. And I just couldn't look at myself in the mirror knowing that I, that that was happening after I realized nobody's making money. I don't think there was a networking event I can go for a while in 2011 to 2012 that someone did not hand me an ACN business card. That's the reason why I was asking that question. <laughs> it was, dude, it, it lit up like a torch, man. So um, three things to prevent shiny objects syndrome. Three, or there are three steps. Well, well it's, it's, I call it the three. Oh, so there's been a lot of shiny objects, right? And I'm sure you get a boatload of opportunities sent at, sent your way. Yeah. I get a boatload of opportunities sent my way. Um, as soon as somebody knows that you have influence or you have money, they're sending, Hey, will you invest in this? Check, take a look at this company, throw money at that. Uh, you've seen it with crypto, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's become a shiny object for a lot of people. NFTs have become a shiny object for a lot of people. Um, and, 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 and some shiny objects can be good, right? There it could be a new opportunity. Apartments have become a shiny object for a lot of hope, house flippers. Um, Amazon stores, e-commerce stores, right? That's been a real shiny object. And so this is where I it really like came up with it about a year ago is uh, people started bringing me like the e-commerce. Dude, brats with your audience, you could sell these e-com stores, you can make a million dollars in a webinar. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, there's certain opportunities. I've been around the block enough times. I've seen this, you know, the insider track on stocks and insider track on crypto and all this stuff. And you always like lose money, right? Always, every single time even though you got the, the insider knowledge on it. And if it's too good to be true, that is, that is a real statement, then um, it probably is, you know? Yeah. And so these e-commerce stores started pop popping up and, and people selling Amazon stores and people selling uh, the uh, um, Walmart stores. And they're like, hey, you should, you should share this. You should share this, promote it. Let's, do, let's give you an affiliate. And, um, and I was like, dude, I just don't, one, I don't like it. It's too good to be true kind of a thing. The algorithm can change in a heartbeat and everybody can lose all their money. Um, and I just don't see myself doing it long-term. Th that's an interesting thought, right? Think about you being in business. How long did it take you to become an expert at real estate, right? So don't consider myself to be fully an expert. Yeah. <laughs> Still learning. So you can read books and there are statistical uh, metrics on this that it takes 10,000 hours minimum to become an expert. Yeah. 10,000 hours, if you're working full-time, 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, that means five years it takes to become an expert at any one thing. Now there's some of us that are kind of psycho and, and uh, we'll dedicate 60 or 70 hours a week to it and can probably expedite that to like three years. And so that was my thing. If I, if I do something, I get very obsessive over it. If I do it, I'm going to be all in on it. And so for me, um, if I don't see myself doing it for three years, I'm not going to do it. Right. Cause I know what it takes to become an expert in any one thing. And there's a year of just planting seeds of just creating the relationships, making the connections, getting access to the resources, setting up the accounts, like all that kind of stuff. Then there's year two, year one's planting, year two's cultivation. Now you're working through it, you're working through all the bumps in the road, you're getting punched in the gut over and over and over again, pushing through, pushing through, pushing through. Year three is when you start having the harvest and you really start winning. You know, everybody quits in year one and two typically, right? They don't wait till, for the harvest. Here's the caveat. Year four and beyond is where you really start the consumption phase, right? Like mm -hmm. that's where you, it gets so stupid, simple, and so easy that like the, the, the more simple and boring a business is, the more money I see it printing, right? you know, because, and it's only boring to you because you're an expert in it. It's exciting for other people. Um, 
who aren't involved in it. But for me, the more boring my business is, the more money I end up making, the more automated it is, the more uh, staff I have in place and team that I, that I have running it, the more money I end up making. And so that to me became like a um, uh, this all encompassing idea of like plant, cultivate, harvest, three years minimum. If I'm not doing it for three years, I'm not doing it. So I do crypto. I invest in crypto because I see myself investing in crypto long-term. I know you're doing NFTs because you can see yourself doing NFTs long-term. I didn't see myself doing e-commerce stores for minimum three years. And I was like, I'm not going to do it at all. And then what, what happens, dude? All, all the, like all the Amazon stores get frozen. All the Walmart stores get frozen. It's like a shit storm. All these guys making all this money and now have to return millions and millions of dollars. And it gets about to be in. What? No, 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 it's not. And so, then, and then, not only did they, did they not make that money, right? Not they probably lost money because there's real overhead in that stuff too, and it ruins a reputation, and it takes them two years to deal with the, the cleanup and the cleaning up the mess. You know, what if they just doubled down on what they were already good at, and focus more on the harvest and the consumption? Right. You know. So, things are not going the way you're expecting with MLM, <laughs> and now. You're paying for gas with coins. Yeah. You just jumped right into apartments? No, no, no. So here's what I ended up doing. I, I was crying on my bed in that August, September of, uh, of 2012. Like, how did I get here? Right. I had it figured out two years, two and a half years ago where I was like financially free. And um, I was like, how did I get here? I had it figured out with real estate. This obviously isn't the vehicle I'm looking for, this MLM thing. So let me go back into real estate. So I shut down that distributorship or membership or whatever it was to the MLM. And I got back in and I sold my home in Charles, the last house that I had, my own primary residence. And real estate is what saved my ass. I saved that house. I had $50,000 that I made on it. And I was able to pay down my credit cards. I bought a ring for my girlfriend, who's now my wife. She didn't know how broke I was. And then um, paid down some debts. And I moved back in with my parents at the age of 27, back in Cleveland, Ohio. So went back to Cleveland mm-hmm. and you got engaged. Yeah. And so I, I only moved my you parents moved. during the engagement phase, but then. So I say, but you proposed and then you moved in your parents. Yeah. <laughs> Great well, my, wife, my wife didn't live with me, right? She lived with her parents, who was all, okay. also in Cleveland. All right. And then, we, we, and then uh, her grandparents had passed away uh, many years before. And there was like a, a little 800, 900 square foot bungalow house um, in, a, in a decent area that they owned free and clear. And uh, they offered it to us to go and live there for two years. And so um, dude, this, this little yellow three bed, one bath house, you know, dated from the 70s we decided to move in and that was our first home, my wife and I, and that's where we had my daughter. And, um, and that was, that was the house. But like, you know, I think a lot of people that they reach a point where like they have a certain amount of success. I got rid of the Mercedes and I started driving a 2000, this was in 2012, 13. And I started driving a 2005 Honda Accord, right? Because there was no payment on it. I can get that with no payment. Um, I moved into that house because there was no, rent payment. All I had to pay for is utilities, taxes, and insurance. So it was like 300 bucks a month. And I could just start chipping away at all my debt and I could start building my net worth again. And, um, I think a lot of people don't, don't swallow their pride like that. You know, they try to fake the story. They try to fake the success. And here's the thing, the same thing that they're doing to try to show that they're successful is the same thing that's keeping them broke. Interesting. Right. 
because they're trying to pr- trying to fake it till you make it mm-hmm. and faking it and having these nice things and having these expensive watches and cars and homes and toys and vacations typically is what keeps people broke and living paycheck to paycheck. Gotcha. It's wild, right? Yeah. How, how it comes full circle of the same thing that I think is going to get me there is actually the thing holding me back. And so I, I just realized like I need to swallow my pride. Let me go and buy an older car, trade in the Mercedes. Let me go and live in um, a family house for a couple of years until I get my feet back underneath me. And what was funny is a couple of people from that network marketing company reached out to me and they're like, hey, we got into this business so that way we would make money to then deploy into real estate. And they said, how about we partner up? How about I bring money and you do the work and we'll come up with some sort of a, a, of an equity split. And so it was me and these two other guys and I ended up having 33% ownership in this new entity and they had 67% ownership and they put up about 300 grand and I went to work buying houses, flipping houses in Cleveland, mm-hmm. uh, buying some single family rentals in Cleveland in the hood in really, really tough areas and ended up, um, falling into my first apartment building. It was an eight unit apartment building in a C minus area. And it was listed for $50,000. I bought it for 30. So, and then I put another 50 into it. So I was all into an eight unit building for $80,000 and it generated $27,000 a year in net income, net income, 33% cap rate. Is that good or bad? <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> but I was also self-managing, Yeah, you know? Um, and so I'm like, after that first year of doing flips and single family rentals and then buying a couple small apartment buildings, I bought another uh, eight unit for 40 grand, put another 30, 40 into that one. And it was like, this is the the absolute trough of the real estate market, right? Mm-hmm. So it's 2012, 2013, and, uh, and I'm buying in war zones for the most part. And so, but I'm getting these ridiculous prices and I'm in Cleveland, Ohio is, is the other part. So it's like, there's a lot of things that were good on timing. But after that first year, I looked back and I realized... I'm really not good at flipping real estate because I just don't have that attention to detail type thing. I don't like the customization of it. And then um, the single family rentals were cool, but it it didn't meet my ambitions and my goals. The apartments did. Because instead of going to eight houses, talking to eight sellers, getting money on eight different deals, having eight closings, having eight tax bills, having eight water bills, having eight foundations, I can go buy one eight unit building and have one foundation, one closing, one seller, raise money one time, one roof, you know, one tax bill. And there's just, there's so many economies of scale by buying apartments versus buying many single family doors. Yeah. Uh, so before we continue the apartments thing, um, I imagine at 21 killing it in real estate, uh, you might've been a little overconfident, potentially a little arrogant, very arrogant. So I had the same issues as well. So, um, what lessons did you learn? Like, cause like for me personally, I needed to be humbled, right? Like I had mm-hmm. these crazy ambitions, not to say my ambitions are less crazy these days, but like I needed to be taught to slow down. Mm-hmm. So did you have, did you learn yeah, any of those lessons? It, it very much so. I mean, like I wouldn't be as good of a steward of capital today and I wouldn't respect money the way that I do today if I didn't lose all that money back when I was 25, 26, 27 years old. Uh, Because I went through that lesson, I know the power of money. I know the power of investing in assets versus liabilities. And that's why I obsess over buying assets. Dude, I have a very simple lifestyle. Like these jeans, I think they're from Old Navy. I think I bought them for 20 bucks, dude. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like 
this is a, a self-branded hat that uh, my company gave me, right? Like it's, I can buy big watches, but I've never spent more than $5,000 on a watch. Yeah. It's hard for me to spend money on assets. I, I drove a 2016 Jeep Patriot up until a year ago, right? And so I traded that out and I got a Jeep Wrangler instead. Yeah. I, I, I can go and get a Range Rover. I can go and get a G-Wagon. I can buy a dealership. I just, I don't see the value in doing it unless it's going to be an asset. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so but it's, it's been burned in my head of, you know, don't be wasteful. The, like efficiencies are a big thing that, that I pay attention to. And then just respecting what money can do. It can be either a resource and, and used for good or it can be a weapon and used for bad. And I can, it kind of goes back to you, right? Like you can read it in a book, but you got to live it. You got to. You know, like you, I can share this story with every audience, every, everybody on this and, uh, and hopefully it gets a lot of exposure and hopefully somebody takes it and they're like, you know what, I'm not going to do the stupid things that that guy did. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, like, you're like, you just got to go through it, man. You got to go through it. It's like, it's hard, hard part of having kids. You know, you don't like, listen, here's why you don't touch the hot stove. It's because you're going to get burned. Well, dad, and they touch it and they're like, now they don't touch it again. Right. You know what I mean? They got to get burned. They got to get hurt. And uh, that's, that's like a really hard part with parenting for me right now, because, uh, you know, you want to help your kids out and, and uh, some, there's some things, some lessons that they just have to learn for themselves. Absolutely. Okay. So now you figured out economies of scale, you figured out, okay, apartments is the way to go. And then. So in 2014, then I'm like, I'm all in on, on apartments. So, uh, I did a lot of 1031 exchange, not a lot, but I did a couple 1031 exchanges. I, I bought an eight unit, bought another eight unit, bought a 12 unit, I bought a 14 unit. Uh, I sold the 14 unit, bought a 23 unit, bought a 15 unit. I bought this 31. Are unit. you at this point still partners? Yes. With the other and, guys? and so those guys ended up, we, we ended up making a lot of money from the properties we sold that, that I generated, you know, additional value from, um, and then they ended up infusing more money. So they, they ended up putting in a little over a million dollars in a span of about 18 months. Okay. So now I got a little, you know, a good chunk of change to go and spend some, uh, on some deals and, uh, turn that, you know, million bucks into, I mean, shoot today, it'd be worth $15 million of property. But back then, uh, it was about 140 doors, you know? So we got up to 140 doors and then life happens, dude. And, and, you know, people go in different directions. I become more valuable over the course of like three years of being in a partnership. They say they don't want to bring any more money. So they end up becoming less valuable. And there are some things like they had some credit things where they couldn't sign on loans, but they wanted to maintain it just, it, 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 were bringing different things to the table. Yeah. They, they could now, now that they, they need me to raise money, they need me to go out and sign on loans. They need me to do all the work fuck, what, what, are we, what, what are you there for? You know what I mean? Yeah. So my value kept on increasing. Their value kept on decreasing. And, um, and there were some other things like I had a salary, they took it away. They, they want to put more on my plate. I went, I tried to join a mastermind. They're like, no, you're not allowed to do that. Like we can figure it out. And like in our little inner circle. And it's just like, they weren't like empowering me to go out and grow this thing. Mm-hmm. And instead they just want to like hold me down. At least that's how I felt. And I'm sure they have their side of the story. I got my side of the story. Truth is somewhere in the middle all the time. Right. And, um, but we ended up saying, Hey, um, uh, we decided to dissolve the partnership. Um, it got kind of ugly. We, we both lawyered up and, you know, had some different claims against each other. And then after about two, three weeks of paying attorneys full time, uh, one of them called me and they're like, dude, the only people getting rich here are going to be the attorneys. Mm-hmm. So, so it always let's, is. let's get in uh, let's sit down. 
and reasonably hash this whole thing out. And um, that's what we ended up doing. We decided let's liquidate everything. And uh, Tim, oh, you guys liquidated everything. We liquidated everything. Man. And I had an exclusive partnership, so I couldn't do deals outside of them. So I had to liquidate the entire portfolio. And I'm pressing the reset button again in 2016, 15, 16. Um, uh, early, uh, it was mid 15, 16, whatever it was. And so, uh, yeah, after three years of that, I like, son of a bitch, dude, I got to start all over. But some of those things that we think are setbacks are really, you know, set ups for better things to come. But I mean, you're probably flush of capital at this point now. It was coming in over time, yeah. you know? So I had, yeah, I had, you know, some cash coming in, but I needed to keep, figure out a way to keep the lights on. I had a, a new baby at home. Uh, we were in the process of, of building a house. And uh, what was good is like, I had other people who were like, dude, I wanted to do a deal with you. I want to bring money to your deals. And um, you know, you had that exclusive partnership, you know, or now we can partner up, now we can joint venture. And then I was, I joined a mastermind in 2015. And dude, just the connections and the resources and what that led me to was like, it, 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 you're a smart guy, right? I'm, I have a decent level of intelligence. The people watching this have at least a certain level of intelligence and ambition, right? But because you're here, you are setting yourself a, a, apart from everybody else who's not uh, investing in themselves, right? So you're going to be successful and you're going to figure out a way. And I was, I was successful. And I was figuring it out, but dude, I was on this trajectory. As soon as I joined a mastermind, it was like this. Yeah. Dude, it was like, boom, it was the, it was the piece that was missing that helped me jump to that next level. And so I started flipping houses again because I needed to keep food on the table. And we were doing turnkey single family stuff at a management company, right? We're talking about how bad management is, <laughs> especially you got turnkey and you're investing in C and D class areas. Um, and so uh, that was a nightmare. We made some money and then we lost a bunch of money with the management and then we sold the management, thank God. But as I was doing that, I started uh, like kind of passively investing or raising money for or sponsoring loans on different apartment buildings. And I found myself in 2017 with about 300 doors. And I was on vacation in 2007. I rented a awesome lake house, brought my wife's family out for a week. They left and then I brought my family out for a week. And as I'm there, you know, on vacation, you, you get kind of like reflective on life. And I was sitting out grabbing coffee, overlooking the lake. It's a beautiful morning. Steam's coming off of it. And uh, I'm doing my net worth statement. And I realize 90% of my net worth was from my apartments, which was about 10% of my time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what if I dedicated all of my resources, all of my team to just investing in apartments? And that following Monday, when I got in the office, I said, guys, shut down the single family side. We're not doing it anymore. Whatever's in the pipeline, we'll see it through. But we're just going to focus on multifamily moving forward. And so um, acquisitions guy, you're not underwriting or, or reviewing houses and running comps on houses. You're underwriting apartments now. Project manager, you're not flipping houses. You're renovating apartments. And dispo guy, you're not selling houses. You're only asset managing apartments, our own portfolio. And here's the beauty of it. It was our own portfolio. So we were the buyer you know, and we didn't have to worry about dispositions, but we did have to worry about operations and stuff, but you can control the deal when it's your own portfolio instead of just doing the transactional thing. And, uh, um, over the next, you know, whatever it was, um, into 2018, about eight, six, eight months, picked up another 300 doors and just doubled your count, doubled my portfolio just because I focused. Um, and then And then another deal came across my desk. This is the one that kind of put me on the map, I would say. Um, A 700-unit portfolio 
came across my desk and um, it was a, a bunch of guys or two investment bankers from New York owned it, but didn't have any experience in real estate, didn't have a partner who knew anything about real estate and didn't interview a management company, right? So they buy all these doors because they're making millions of dollars on Wall Street and uh, they buy all these apartments or 700 units down in Georgia and just get clobbered. And they realize this ship sinking, this ship, if, if their other job, their, their Wall Street job is going to sink also if they don't just burn this one, right? And yeah. then focus back on this opportunity or their main, their main uh, source of income. So they just let this go. And, and we came in, we made an offer, bought 700 doors for 10 million bucks. So $15,000 a door, but it needed another $20,000 a door in renovation across every unit. So it was a disaster, dude. Yeah. Um, I mean, we put $20 million into, or 15 to $20 million into renovations alone. Um, it's a big rental project. So, uh, and there's, there's more of a story, the, the private money lender who's going to write the whole down payment check, which is about 4 million bucks backed out the Friday before the Monday closing. And so we can get into all that stuff if you guys want to, but, um, I had to raise 4 million bucks essentially in 48 hours and I'd never raised that much money before, but I got it done. And I talked about it on social media and then I did like some posts about it and it went like viral. And I got like all these people started reaching out and they're like, dude, didn't even know that you raised money that way. Didn't know that you syndicated real estate. Didn't know that you took on investors and you paid them in a fixed return plus equity and this other stuff. And like, let me know about the next one. Yeah. And then all of a sudden people started reaching out saying, Hey, I want to invest with you. I want to sell you a deal. I want to buy a deal from you or I want to pay you to coach me. And like, I didn't intend to get into coaching. It was like, uh, just this tidal wave of people saying, dude, you need to coach people. You need to teach people this. And I was like, all right. And I started putting together something called commercial empire, which is how to scale into apartments. Yeah. And, uh, so I've been doing that for the past, uh, three and a half years. And, uh, and that's cool. We partner up with a bunch of students and stuff, but, um, and it's helped me grow my portfolio, right? It helps me get into deals that I couldn't get into, helps me raise money that maybe, um, that I couldn't have raised before. It helps other people joint venture and get involved in deals. And so it's like, it's worked out pretty well until you realize some joint venture partners don't do what they say they're going to do and all this other stuff. So, so uh, let's say, right. Like someone's listening right now mm -hmm. and they're like, man, like, well, let's just say me. Right. Cause uh, I think we're closing on our first one this week. Hey, boy. Yeah. So that's gonna be our very first uh, one. They were supposed to, supposed to close like in January, then it was February. Now like uh, loan docs are finally it, done. It's always, it always, so loan docs are finally much. done. Right. So uh, we're closing. I think it's, it's this week. So, but, if I was starting brand new, I was like, Tim, help me. I want to get my first apartment. It's the first thing you tell me. Yeah. I, I would say there's two ways in my mind to organically build or to build a real estate portfolio in multifamily. Um, the first is the way that I did it. And it's, it's actually the way that I teach my students to go out and do it too. Um, which is organically buying a building buy a four unit, buy another four unit, buy an eight unit, buy a 16 unit, buy a 22 unit, buy a 50 unit, buy another eight unit, right? And just organically grow your portfolio to a, at least a hundred, preferably a couple hundred doors. If you do that, you're going to go through the learning. It's a lot easier to raise money on a 20 unit building than it is a 200 unit building or 2000 unit portfolio you want to take down. It's easier if there's a roof leak and you have to deal with it on a 15 unit building than it is on a 150 unit complex. You know sure. what I mean? Um, it's easier to raise capital to, to uh, sponsor the loans and qualify for the financing. You get a lot more respect, right? Once you already have a portfolio, if you didn't have a portfolio, now you would because you have, you have 
uh, a lot of real estate experience, but if somebody's never done a deal before or they're newer, they don't really have the reputation. So they get one year of experience. And they go and try to put a bid in on a 150 unit building, even if they do have access to the money. And you're bidding against a guy like me who owns over 4,000 doors. Dude, they're going to take a lower offer from me because they know that I'm going to close versus a higher offer from somebody else who might not be able to close or doesn't have the experience. So they're looking at the buyer's background as part of considering the offer. Very much so. Very much so. It's a lot about reputation. So that's not to say you should discard every 150 unit building though. Build up your portfolio organically. And then if the 150 unit comes across your desk, then you reached out to Steve Trang or Ryan Pineda or Tim Bratz or somebody else in your local community who has the balance sheet, who has the experience and can posture up and you can link arms with them. And maybe you don't get 100% or 50% of the deal even. Maybe you get 5% of the deal for sourcing that opportunity and bringing it to a guy like you or me. But you get 5% and you're able to say, I own 5% of those 150 doors and that now builds your balance sheet. It builds your net worth statement. It builds your credibility. And you learn through that whole process. So I would say do both. Um, but one way is if you, if you have money or you have access to a bunch of money, like Pineda. Hmm. Pineda's like, oh, I want to get 50 doors this year. I was like, dude, are you, are you out of your mind? Like with your amount of, I called him a name when we were offline, but <laughs> I won't do it on the air. Um, and so I was like, dude, with your level of influence, there's no reason that you shouldn't own 500 doors this year. He's like, dude, you really think so? I was like, I know so. And so he started a fund in, I don't even know. It was like April of 2021. Yeah. Not even a year ago. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and within, I don't know, six months, I helped him take down. Like I brought the deal. My team's doing operations. He went and raised the money. We co-signed on the loan. He signed on it and I signed on it and we co-sponsored the loan. And, um, guess what, dude, now he owns 334 doors with me in Georgia. You know what I mean? And so, that's a way that you can get into a bunch of apartments very quickly if you do have money or a big balance sheet or um, you can source and find deals. You can do that and bring a big building to somebody like me and, and joint venture. The other way is the organic growth way that, a way that I grew my portfolio. Um, but I would be doing both of them at the same time. So let's say someone's, you know, we got a young hustler, right? They're like, man, I, I want to get into apartments. Like I'm all in, I'm sold. Mm-hmm. How do they even find the apartment like what's step one in like finding bro how do you find single family houses pull this and skip trace (laughs) so i'm asking you like where do they pull that list yeah so nobody even knows about this yet i'm not even like announcing this uh but i'm gonna announce it if you're okay with it yeah but you know there's a lot of softwares and stuff for single family Mm -hmm. there's not many there's really two of them costar and there's another one called Reonomy. Reonomy just got bought by private equity. So yeah, they've gone, dude, they've gone down, downhill. Oh, really? Yeah. That was a big purchase. Dude, it was a big purchase. And um, dude, the customer service is dog shit now. Their their quality of lists are, are have gone downhill big time. We used to use them for everything. We just referred a ton of business to them. Um, and then when they got bought, we just were like, dude. And then CoStar is just old, antiquated, slow, expensive. and um, Definitely expensive. Yep. And difficult not easy to use yeah the it's not even like that it's hard to use as far as like uh like like a learning curve it's just a crappy interface yep yep it's horrible 
yeah. and it's, but they're such a, a behemoth in the industry. The They've biggest. been around for so long yeah. that dude, they're, they're too big of a ship where they can't move. You know, they're right. just going in one direction. They're staying in that direction. So one of my good buddies, somebody that you, uh, I think, you know, as well, owns one of the largest data aggregators and softwares in the single family space. He's mm-hmm. like, dude, we should do this in the multifamily. So we've been working on this for six months over, over that seven, eight months. And, um, we're, we're launching it this month. Actually, uh, it's going to be called commercial empire deal flow. Mm-hmm. and commercial employers in my coaching, but uh, anybody can jump in. Uh, it'll be a monthly, I don't know, probably in that two ninety nine or a month range, which is, I think, uh, Rihanna is like 500 bucks a month and CoStar is thousands or it can be thousands depending on if you want nationwide access or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and dude, you can skip trace right there. You can pull lists right there and, and you can do uh, even direct mail pieces right from the software. So if um, uh, I'm going to get you the link, don't buy it yet. It's not even available yet, but you guys will have the link through him yep. and uh, I'll get you an affiliate link for it. And oh, that way they can that. get a discount and then, um, you know, for being your, your audience, but it's not available yet. It'll be available in the next like two weeks. So as soon as it is, and it's going to, I'm excited for it. It's going to crush. All right. So that's the list. So before then, so that's where I get the list. So before then, CoStar was your Bro, primary. Well, how about this? How about, what if you don't have money? What are some ways that if you, if you don't have money, start dialing for dollars. You know, pick up a phone and instead of calling for for sale by owners, call for rent by owners. Hey, I saw you have an apartment for rent. I'm not interested in renting. I'm interested in buying your building. Do you have any interest in selling? Well, uh, yes, no, maybe, who knows? Start the dialogue, yeah. you know? Um, uh, driving for dollars. Just like there's houses with tall grass and boarded up windows. There's apartments with tall grass and boarded up windows. You can pull a list for delinquent taxes. The software will do that too, but um, you can pull a list on delinquent taxes and start banging out phone calls to delinquent mm-hmm. tax properties. How about Google? Just Google search apartment buildings, you know, Tempe, Arizona, and see what pops up. Go to the ones with the worst ratings because those are typically physically distressed or managerially distressed. Yeah, totally mismanaged. And start banging out phone calls to them and say, hey, let me get this headache off your plate because if the tenants are pissed, the city's probably pissed. The management company's probably pissed yeah. and you could probably find a pretty motivated seller because they're not infusing money. Maybe they don't have the money or maybe they don't want to spend the money or maybe they're too old and they don't want to deal with it. Um, you can, you can go to the building department. Sometimes the building departments, uh, at least the one uh, where my office is up in Cleveland, they keep a, 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 um, a database of every property in the entire city and they rank every single or not rank rate every single one of them, A, B, C, or D based on how many uh, physical distressed uh, items are on that property. It's like um, when you go to the restaurant, it's like A, B, C, or D, like yeah. <laughs> on the last food inspection. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. So each pro- each building has that in in at least in that um, uh, building department. But there's I know other ones do it too. But dude, you can pull that list, start reaching out to all those landlords because the city's finding everybody who's in the yeah. D category every every month. Quarter, Other ones whatever. I've seen was um, when the renewals coming up, not renewal, when their, their note was about to yeah. be due. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I get, I get those calls a lot from brokers uh, who want to redo the, the, the capital. So um, pulling a list, calling them. And then besides that, what else is different in the multifamily space versus the single family space? It, you, one thing that you haven't heard me say is brokers. I, I work with brokers now because I have a big balance sheet and I have a, you know, I can say, Hey man, I own all these doors. I have this much experience. I've raised this much money. I have this big portfolio. And so they'll give me respect, but they do not respect people who just, you know, come off the street. They don't have a portfolio. Send me some deals. Uh, you're not going to get that. The, the 
commercial brokerage world and residential brokerage world are two very different things. Think about residential brokerage. There's people who shouldn't be homeowners who end up owning homes in the residential world, like like inheritance, right? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking like, I don't know, some little old lady who never handled the, ta- the the bills or anything, the finances, her husband passes away. And this little old lady, dude, could the wolves start coming in on her, right? And they're like, there's investors, there's brokers, there's all this stuff. There need to be laws and regulations to protect somebody like that who doesn't have the business or financial acumen, who finds themselves owning a piece of property. So, you know the broker, like what are your rules here? If you get a listing, how soon, how long do you have to put it on the MLS? Uh, 24, 48 hours. Yeah. So in, in Ohio, I know it's 72 hours. You have to get it up. Otherwise you're violating your, your license. It's a clear laws. cooperation law. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is in commercial real estate, dude, these are all investors. They're buying for investment property. So it's assumed that you know what the hell you're doing. In commercial real estate, it's the wild, wild west with brokers. They can hold that listing. They don't ever have to put it on. And there's not really like an MLS. There's, you know, LoopNet and stuff like that. But they don't have to actually put it out to market. They can keep that listings. as a pocket listing. They're all pocket listings. And you think they're going to take it to somebody with no portfolio? Or you think they're going to take it to their top buyers in town that have performed over and over and over again? Well, they want to double net it too. And they'd want to double net it. Although you're, you're seeing in the commercial side, they don't, they're like, no, if you want to get paid a, a brokerage fee by representing a buyer, you need to get yeah. it from the buyer. Well, yeah, no, they're saying that, but they're still charging five, 6%. Oh, for sure. So, yep. Uh, and when you get into the bigger stuff, they'll charge a little bit less. That'll, that'll come down. I'm selling 26 million. They're charging me like a one and a half percent fee. So, uh, two buildings together, but anyways, so just know that like the brokerage world, once you build a portfolio, and you have the, the, the respect from the brokers and you can gain that respect from the brokers. Yes. Like that's a good way to go out and source deals. I wouldn't start there though. I would yeah. start off market and try to go direct to the seller. So you mentioned earlier, there's three things, sourcing deals, mm-hmm. kind of covered that a little bit. Sourcing capital. Yep. I think everyone's always wanting to get better at sourcing capital. Yep. So how do you source capital? Oh man, this is like one of my favorite things to talk about. There's a lot of different ways um, to structure raising money. And what I noticed is that like, if I paid somebody a 8% return on a single family house, if somebody else dangled a 9% carrot, they would usually jump over to the higher rate of return. So what I started doing when I was still doing single family was I would raise money and say, Steve, you bring money to the deal. I need $150,000 to flip this house. I'm going to pay you a fixed 10% annualized on your money or 15% of the profits, whichever is greater. Now, you look at it like my worst case scenario is 10%. I could potentially make way better than that. Mm-hmm. And you almost feel like we're partners, right? Like, yeah. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm in on this too. You know what I mean? Right. And, um, and so it's a way that you can really attract a lot of money um, and, make, and get, make it exciting. Like they're actually not just lending you money. When, whenever somebody asks to borrow money, I'm like, dude, I'm never gonna see this money again. But if they're like, hey, you wanna partner up on a deal? And you wanna bring the capital? I like partnering up. Like that's yeah. more exciting to an entrepreneur. Um, so that's, uh, that's one part as far as single family goes. I, I kind of learned in multifamily, that's really two types of uh, loans. One of them is like the debt loan. Let me, let me pay you a fixed, you know, I, we, we see it, you know, some guys from CG and stuff that pay like 6% pay as you go. And then they, whenever they sell or refinance, they pay another 6%. So it's like a 12% total return annualized on their mm-hmm. money. 
same situation as over here, though, is 13% carrot, all of a sudden they jump ship. The other side of the coin is equity, right? And say, hey, uh, you're not, there's no fixed return, but I'm going to give you equity in the deal. And you might own, you might bring the cash and own 50% of the equity. Or like the partnership that I had, they had 67% of all the equity in the deals, but there was no fixed return on their money. That's fun for somebody who's a little bit more risk averse, or no, risk, pro, pro risk, I don't know what the word is. Um, so like they're okay with, with the ups and downs and the cycles and potentially not making any money on something, but you know, having bigger upside when they right. do win. It's not so good for somebody who wants predictable cash flow on mm -hmm. their money. So I thought, dude, you either got this or you got this, why not create a hybrid? And so the way that I structure is I pay a fixed return of usually seven, 8% while the money's deployed. So if you invested in one of my deals, you put a hundred grand with me, I pay you like 8%, let's call it for about two to three years while the money's invested in this value add apartment. Then I go and refinance or sell. I typically refinance <clears throat> at that time. You get all your money back hundred grand. In the meantime, you've made 8% per year paid mm -hmm. as we went along. And then you still maintain a piece of equity in the deal forever. So that, and it might not be 50%, maybe it's 25% for the entire investor pool. But because I paid them a fixed return, you can get away with maybe get offering a little bit less equity. Yeah. And to, to somebody who's a lender, they're like, dude, I made 8%. That's just gravy, all this equity over here now. And you still get depreciation and you still get cash flow. And you get some portion of the refi proceeds and you get some portion of any future sales proceeds and principal pay down. Like, that's a really sexy offering yeah, to I mean, bring that to an investor. So Stephanie, right? She was mm -hmm. the one that reached out to me. He's like, hey, you want to fund this deal? And same thing, right? She's like, hey, I just closed my first apartment. You know, any 